Governments around the world have begun to develop strategies to protect themselves against cyber threats while trying to promote the benefits of a cyber-enabled world. But as nations pursue their own cyber defense policies, the effect of those policies will have consequences beyond securing cyberspace to influence the globalized trade of international technology and the growth and development these technologies promise. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group, giving a lot of thought of the impact of national cybersecurity policies on international trade is the director of Brookings Institution's Center for Technology Innovation, Alan Freeman. Freeman has just published a paper on the subject, Cybersecurity and Trade, National Policies, Global and Local Consequences. And I'm pleased he's joining me to speak about the topic. Welcome, Alan. Okay, Alan, uh, please take a few moments to summarize the highlights of your paper. So you you did an excellent job in the introduction. There are a number of questions surrounding the merits of cybersecurity regulation in general, uh, but independent of the question of the role of the state versus the market in securing cyberspace is the question of how states will interact. And the challenge is because we have a global network and we have global flows of information and the infrastructure that we're using is built by global companies, when one country decides to create a set of standards or policies or even just mandatory testing regime that really can interfere in this flow. And this paper was the first attempt to try to characterize and scope the problem, touching on everything from encryption policies to cloud to uh, some of the stronger national standards that have been proposed and try to identify what the major threats are. Now, I try to be neutral about the question of the merits of regulation in general. And if you want to regulate, that should be a separate question, but we need to think about what the impact is going to be on global trade. And the real worst case scenario is if all of these large countries, you know, the US, China, India, Brazil, major players in global trade for information technology, if they all decide that this stuff is critical to national security, they will invoke their right to abrogate their responsibilities under the World Trade Organization, which requires a certain amount of free flow of goods and services. If if they throw up these national security exceptions, that's going to escalate into a global trade war that could make it much harder to not only import and export, but even build the stuff because our supply chains these days are global. And so if one country starts to create rules that say, well, we're only going to allow certain types of goods into our country or there has to be a domestic IP, then that can have real ramifications on where things are built and how they're built and how they're developed and the speed of development. How could what our government here in the United States is doing have an impact on global trade? There are two great examples that we've seen from American policy. At one extreme, we have a clause in the recent uh, continuing resolution for the budget, which in an effort to sort of counter what Congress saw as a dangerous supply chain from China, Congress told four government agencies, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Justice, NASA, and the National Science Foundation, that they are not allowed to buy any information systems that are built by Chinese companies, and, and the, the legal language is even makes it even stronger. But the long and short of it is it's really hard to buy any information systems that aren't, at least in part, built in China. Now, what did that do? On one hand, that only applies to government procurement. That isn't quite as bad as something that applies to all imports. But 
First, the American government is quite a large consumer of information technology. And second, to name check a country of origin in a bill is actually a pretty egregious thing to do in the international trade and diplomatic circles because it really does invite other countries to retaliate in kind. So that is sort of an example of something that is very disruptive and sets a dangerous precedent for governments directly interfering in where we're buying things, not focusing on the security, right? It's not saying, you know, you must pass these tests and everything must pass these tests. It's in country of origin. I want to contrast sort of this, this procurement rule that I see as, as focused poorly on security that doesn't understand the trade implications of security with what we've seen in the voluntary framework that's part of the executive order. There, in an effort to, so, so the philosophy behind the voluntary framework is they said, well, listen, the government isn't going to be in the business of regulating specific standards, and the government isn't even going to be coming up with the standards. The first part of the voluntary framework has been to assess what standards are out there and do gap analysis to try to encourage various industrial sectors to adopt standards that are out there and work towards standards where we don't have anything. And that, I think, is the potential to promote a positive impact on trade because it, it really is drawing in companies that potentially have an international audience to say, okay, we need to have some sort of way of demonstrating security. Find a general purpose solution that you can then export. It gives companies uh, an incentive to find a way to make the solutions that they find something that is globally shareable and won't discriminate against any country or any set of companies. Well, a lot of our audience are security professionals in the trenches in government agencies, financial institutions, healthcare, other businesses. Why should they care about this intersection between global commerce and cybersecurity policies? One of the reasons that I started writing about it was that there really is very little intersection between the people who think about international trade and the people who are thinking about security. The challenge is we're not talking with each other. And it's particularly important for government policymakers to have an understanding of what's going on around the world for a couple of reasons. First, by highlighting the idea that if every country goes it alone, and ignores what other countries are doing, we're going to have this adverse trade outcome, this potential for very serious trade wars. But I think that from the perspective of a government IT manager, uh, we can actually learn a lot from each other. We shouldn't assume that every country is going to have the best solution. We should be reaching out and finding out what's going on, what, are the, what is the director general proposing in, uh, in Europe, what are the different solutions out there, how can we learn from each other. This is something that the U.S. government has been a traditional leader in, in a number of spaces, whether it's you know, medical safety or transportation safety, you know, or, or just a, the Department of State has been very active in, in coordinating international expertise so that everyone can learn from each other. I mean, this is very important in cybersecurity for people to realize that the problems they face aren't just unique to their agency, but there are people who are thinking about this around the world and finding ways of sharing solutions. As you look at this, as governments look at developing these regulations, uh, are you finding that they tend to be fairly parochial? They're looking after their own self-interest, or do some organizations actually have a broader outlook and understand some of the challenges of uh, global trade? That's an excellent question because it really depends on, of course, the government and what their other goals are. There is a lot of discussion on both sides of the Atlantic right now, transatlantic trade uh, and information partnership. And this is going to be a trade deal between the EU and the United States. There are many people on the EU side 
we're going to veer into the data side for a second, who really want to have data protection built into this. This is privacy protection, of course, a set of regulations that, uh, that EU officials take very seriously, whereas on this side of the Atlantic, we tend to believe that privacy regulation should focus on harms and be driven by particular applications. Right? So we treat our privacy for medical records differently than privacy bank records, et cetera. We're not talking to each other across the Atlantic. Talk to a number of people from uh, Brussels and Berlin who say eventually Americans will understand that this is a deal breaker for Europe. Meanwhile, when you talk to people in Washington who are on the trade negotiations, I think they're like, well, you know, the Europeans, they think this is important, but eventually they'll realize that trade is more important than privacy. Uh, so I think that's an example where we're seeing sort of a mismatch in understanding goals. What would be the ramifications if something like this, uh, a treaty doesn't take place because of these concerns? The general consensus is we can improve growth through, through more free trade. For information technology in particular, the United States is a net exporter in that instance, so it will probably hurt Europeans more than it will hurt Americans. The larger concern is this is one of a number of issues that have been flagged in the IT space that remind leaders in Europe that they are at the mercy of American technology production. Combine that with things like uh, the NSA working with our, our internet service providers to gain data, start to get a narrative which reminds a lot of people uh, in Europe that they should build their own technology. Could potentially, you know, down the road cause a trade war. For the IT sphere, especially those who, who use it, the slow case of TTIP is bad news if you're trying to sell technology, not quite as important if you're trying to use it. On the other hand, if, if the United States does sign a treaty that includes strong data protection, that would transform the American IT market because we'd have to think about how to actually build in an understanding of how data is used and, and processed in our systems. You thought that adapting an organization to deal with data breach notification laws was tricky. Try doing that uh, tenfold because now you actually have to understand exactly why data was collected to make sure that you're not using it for some other purpose, things like that. So important for privacy, but it makes information systems harder to use, harder to design as well. Another concern with cybersecurity regulations, some people believe that countries are trying to create cybersecurity regulations to actually be a, to, to be a barrier for trade. It's not the craziest idea, but of course the truth is always somewhere in the middle. There are countries that say, well, listen, if we make it harder for uh, Western countries to export into our market, then that can you know, protect our market and, and help it grow. So certainly something, sometimes it's been quite explicit. So for example, India has, uh, for the moment, tabled a policy that is, is called preferential market access, PMA, which explicitly says for in the telecommunications sector, the government-run networks and the privately-run networks as well should really more important that we buy domestic products rather than importing foreign ones. And that's clearly a protectionist move. And the challenge is to sort of separate explicit protectionism, which if a country wants to do, fine, but you know we're going to call you on that in the World Trade Organization because we have institutions dealing with that. We want to separate that from cybersecurity regulation. So we need to have a conversation that says, okay, if you're trying to set up very rigorous standards and you say you're doing this for the reasons of security, for example, China has a set of regulations that's known as the multi-layer protection scheme. And one of the requirements for technology that's going to be used in critical infrastructure, so that this is it's, it's more advanced, more serious uh, sectors, 
uh, say, listen, not only does it have to be uh, built by a Chinese firm, but the intellectual property that supports this technology has to be owned by the Chinese firm. And that's a little tricky. It's much harder to defend that as saying that it's directly relevant to security. Do you know why the Chinese are doing that? There are lots of different speculations. If you are someone who thinks ill of the Chinese and you tender the conspiracy theory, you say it's clearly part of a protectionist plan that fits in with their indigenous, uh, with their, in, you know, they have a, a policy or a strategy called indigenous innovation. They want to shift from being users of other people's intellectual property to developing their own. And the way you do that is you promote domestic growth and, and buy Chinese the same way that we have a buy American. Another way of looking at it, which is also important, is to look at the history of China, and they have very clear rules around a number of different technologies, particularly telecommunications, because since the late 1800s, or even earlier, one of the first things that foreign colonial powers did was interfere with the domestic communication system. A long history of saying there will never be foreign direct investment in the Chinese telecommunications sector, and you could look at this system as an application of that. And unfortunately, the recent disclosures from the NSA have alluded to the idea that occasionally intelligence services may be interfering in the supply chain, so that things that are being sold are legitimately insecure. And that's why the final recommendation to my paper is that the traditional forces that have traditionally not been involved in cybersecurity, particularly sort of representatives of the trade community and the diplomatic community, need a seat at the table when we're talking about large-scale cybersecurity policy, because it's one thing to say we can gain a temporary advantage if one country can compromise another country's technology through exports, but that's not a winning game. You gain a short-term advantage, but you lose a lot of other national benefits. So what do you see happening going on, especially after these uh, NSA disclosures it has created a lot of mistrust toward the U.S.? It really has. This question of cybersecurity regulation fits in the same category as this question of the NSA. If we set aside the value of privacy, we set aside that normative question about whether or not what they're doing was right, and we look at the question of what did they gain versus what have we lost. And the problem was for the NSA and for, I think this is true for most intelligence agencies around the world, exploitation of technology and system doesn't have a huge cost. Right? You can insert vulnerabilities or identify new vulnerabilities that are already there and not patch them, and you gain information, you gain knowledge that's useful for you know, national strategic purposes. There are legitimate national security interests in compromising other countries' systems. The problem is no one inside the intelligence agencies have been making a reasonable trade-off doing this calculation of saying, well, what are the risks if this comes out? Why should we, you know, on one hand, everyone spies on everyone else? On the other hand, you try to be careful not to get caught spying because that's bad for public relations. Similarly, say, okay, well, we could ship something to another country with a backdoor built into it, or we could try to compromise a NIST standard, but the one that makes us less secure. But two, that really has the potential of interfering with American trade relationships and potentially destabilizing global trade entirely if countries realize that or come to believe that they shouldn't trust each other. And that will really undo a lot of the benefits that we've had from a global market. You mentioned something in passing there, the idea of compromising NIST standards, one of its standards in relationship to the NSA, perhaps uh, manipulating it. 
and, and NIST standards are respected around the world. They are, and particularly diverse because the NSA, uh, I don't know if, if we want to get into the history of cryptography, but the NSA actually interfered in the past with a NIST cryptographic standard to make it much more secure. NIST has sort of standardized and promoted DES and then AES as, as uh, encryption standards, and the NSA identified a particular cryptanalytic attack against these algorithms and found a way to fix them uh, long before the public academic community knew about them. And so they went from being this, this force that sort of promoted or helped promote trust in this American institution to something that weakened the trust in this American institution. Okay, any final thoughts? I think there are a couple of things. One, this isn't something that we should be running around pointing fingers and saying, you're being protectionist. You're being an unfair trade partner. That's not a productive way to get things done because that's going to make every country defensive and certainly will make Americans defensive. The solution really has to be to focus on identifying efficient ways that we can come up with national standardization and testing procedures and make sure that every country understands that we have to work together to secure cyberspace, that it's not a zero-sum game. Thanks, Alan. Thank you very much. Well, that's Alan Freeman of the Brookings Institution. I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.